Good. All right. Good morning, beloved, and welcome. Feels so intimate today. I want to invite you to open your Bibles and turn with me to 2 Peter chapter 2. We are in 2 Peter chapter 2, and this morning we'll be covering verses 4 through, we'll call it 10a, the middle of verse 10, as we continue in our series, Growing in Grace, a study of 2 Peter. I want to begin this morning by reading our text, 2 Peter chapter 2. Starting in verse 4, hear now the words of the living and true God. Peter writes, For if God did not spare angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell and committed them to pits of darkness reserved for judgment, and did not spare the ancient world, but preserved Noah, a preacher of righteousness, with seven others, when he brought a flood upon the world of the ungodly, and if he condemned the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah to destruction by reducing them to ashes, having made them an example to those who would live ungodly lives thereafter, and if he rescued righteous Lot, oppressed by the sensual conduct of unprincipled men, for by what he saw and heard that righteous man while living among them felt his righteous soul tormented day after day by their lawless deeds, then the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from temptation and to keep the unrighteous under punishment for the day of judgment, and especially those who indulge the flesh in its corrupt desires and despise authority. That sounded like a mouthful. It is. This is one long, what's called a conditional sentence in the Greek. If this is true, then this. If this is true, then this. But as Peter is speaking for God, he pledges total condemnation and fiery judgment upon the false teachers who lie about the truth of God's word. That's what Peter is getting at here. It's really reminiscent to me of Matthew chapter 23, when Jesus unloads some of his most fiery, scathing rebukes against the false teachers of his day. Now, as we've seen throughout the last couple of weeks, the Lord has always had very strong words for people who pervert the word of his truth. But the strongest words of all are reserved for false teachers and false prophets who say they speak for God, but do not. Now, as we return to the second chapter of this great little epistle, we really come to the heart of his message here, and that is to um, warn us against false teachers. In the first three verses of this chapter, Peter begins unmasking the false teachers by sketching their outline, as it were. And as he continues through this chapter, he will begin coloring it in with even greater detail, starting in verse 10. But before he fills the whole picture in with color, he stops in verses 4 through 10a to pronounce God's just judgment on them but also his faithful deliverance of God's people now if you're with us last week we noted in verses one and three the promise of the false teachers judgment at the end of verse one it says they bring swift destruction upon themselves and again at the end of verse three it says their judgment from long ago is not idle and the destruction is not asleep. So the promise of their impending judgment is very clear in these scriptures. Now as we move into verse 4, Peter begins laying out for us three precedents for their destruction. These are the precedents for their destruction. And in verses 4 through 8, Peter's going to give us three very well-known accounts, or maybe I should say two very well-known accounts and one other account, a total of three, accounts of God's divine judgment, all from the book of Genesis. Because after all, it may have been incredibly tempting for some of Peter's original readers to doubt whether or not these false teachers that were coming against the church would ever really be punished. At least for the moment, they seemed to be flourishing. 
They were fleecing the flock with their lies. But Peter reminds him of some biblical history, noting that just as God judged faithfully in the past, so he will uphold justice in the future. So let's begin with verse 4, and the first precedent that Peter recalls is the fallen angels from Genesis. You'll see these in your notes on the back of the bulletin. Fallen angels from Genesis. Let's notice what it says there in verse 4. For if God did not spare angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell and committed them to pits of darkness reserved for judgment. Notice that short phrase, for if, which begins this verse. Um, I would have preferred that the translators use the word since, because there's no doubt here that God did judge the angels. Right? If sometimes implies doubt. Um, But there's no doubt here, because this is something that has already happened. And so the point here is this. Since God did not spare the angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell, then what do you think God will do with these false teachers who have twisted God's words and perverted his truth in his church? And the implication is, is if God judged his holy angels in the past, and he did, then he will most certainly judge these false teachers in the future as well. It's an old pattern for God. The precedent has already been established. Now, in order for us to really unlock verse 4, we need, ourself, we need to ask ourselves, what angels is Peter talking about? What angels, when they sinned, did God cast them into hell and committed them to pits of darkness? What angels and what sin is this all about? Is he talking about... Um, when the highest ranking of all the angels, Lucifer, wanted to exalt himself like the Most High God to get a position of equality with God. And as Revelation 12 suggests, that one-third of the holy angels then joined Lucifer's heavenly revolt as they proudly opposed God leading to their eviction from heaven. Is that the sin that he's referring to here? I don't think so. That's probably not what Peter's talking about here. Since God didn't cast them into hell, nor did he commit them to pits of darkness. In fact, those are the demons who are loose now in the world, securing Satan's unholy purposes. The Apostle Paul identified such angels when he wrote in Ephesians 6, verse 12, and he said, We do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against authorities, against the cosmic cosmic powers over this present darkness against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. So those fallen angels are still roaming around today doing Satan's bidding. So it can't be them. (laughs) can't be them. But I want to draw your attention to this term, cast them into hell in verse 4. It's actually a translation of a a single verse. Tartarose. Sounds kind of like tartarizing your fish, right? This word is actually derived from the word tartarus and uh, a word commonly used by the Greeks to describe the uh, darkest abyss where only the worst rebels and and criminals receive the most severe divine punishment. In fact, it was much like the word Jesus used, the term Gehenna, which was the Greek name for Jerusalem's garbage pile um, there in the valley of Gehenim, where the fires burned continuously and illustrated for Jesus when he spoke about hell. Jesus said to those who go to hell, they will be thrown into the outer darkness, and in that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. So here were some angels who sinned against God and were cast into hell and committed them to pits of darkness. And they are held there, the end of verse 4 says, reserved for judgment. They're like a prisoner who is incarcerated awaiting for his final sentencing. There's no bail for them. There's no way out. But the question is, who are these angels, these demons, and what in the world did they do to deserve this? 
must have done something incredibly serious because after all, there are a lot of other demons still running around loose, right? What kind of atrocity did they commit that forced God to imprison them? Let's find out. Turn to Jude 6 and let's see what they did because Jude talks about the exact same thing. And as I've mentioned several times through this study, 2 Peter chapter 2 and the little book of Jude really overlap each other quite a bit. So you should be familiar with Jude when studying the second chapter. But notice what it says there in uh, Jude 6, only one chapter in Jude, so Jude 6. He says, and angels who did not keep their own domain. And domain means sphere of being, their sphere of life. They didn't stay where they belonged. Jude says they abandoned their proper abode. So in other words, they moved beyond the demon sphere which God has allowed them to be in. Now Jude says because these fallen angels abandoned their proper abode, God responded. It says in verse 6, He has kept them in eternal bonds under darkness for the judgment of the great day. Well, now that sounds just like our verse in 2 Peter 2, verse 4. So we're getting close, but what did they do? What did they do? Verse 7 of Jude tells us. Whatever these fallen angels did, Jude says, is just as Sodom and Gomorrah. Since they, in the same way as these, indulged in gross immorality and went after strange flesh. Okay, now we're getting a lot closer. Whatever these angels did is similar to what happened in Sodom and Gomorrah. And what happened there? Well, we'll look at it closer as we go, but Jude says they indulged in gross immorality and went after strange flesh. Now, for those who don't know what the gross immorality of Sodom and Gomorrah was, it was rampant homosexuality. That was the strange flesh that the men of Sodom went after. Okay, and we'll look, look, look at that story closer, as that is the second precedent of judgment. But for now, the picture has become much clearer for us. Both Peter and Jude are talking about the same horrific event that took place back in Genesis. And whatever these fallen angels did, it was similar to what the men did in Sodom and Gomorrah when they went after strange flesh. And what did the men of Sodom do exactly? They were trying to have homosexual relations with the angels who came to warn Lot and his family of the impending judgment upon the city. And when they, these men saw these angels, they went absolutely crazy trying to break into Lot's house so they could get to these angels. And remember, when the angels appear in human form, they always appear as men. Probably big, impressive, warrior-type men. So in Genesis 19, we have the homosexuals of Sodom and Gomorrah lusting after angelic beings. And it was that particular sin that appears to have been so widespread that the Lord ultimately rains down his fiery judgment, turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah into ash. Now listen carefully. Just as the men of Sodom went after the strange flesh of angels leaving their abode, so also did these fallen angels go after the strange flesh of women leaving their abode. Two stories, that's the common thread between them. That's the comparison. Both the angels and these men did not keep their own domain but abandoned their proper abode and they all indulged in gross immorality. Now you might be wondering, well, when did this happen with the fallen angels? Well, let's go all the way back to Genesis chapter 6 and the time of Noah to find out. Genesis chapter 6, we are going to be exposed to an incredibly dark time in history. Now we think it's pretty ungodly time period that we live in today, and, and Lord knows it is. Um, 
It doesn't feel like it could get much worse than all the perversion that we see in the world today. But imagine living in a time where there were only eight believers on all the earth. That's how depraved it was in the time of Noah, and these fallen angels had a big hand in it. Let's read Genesis chapter 6, starting there in verse 1. It says, Now it came about when men began to multiply on the face of the land, and daughters were born to them, that the sons of God saw that the daughters of men were beautiful. Now that term, the sons of God, refers to these fallen angels. They're the ones Peter and Judah have been talking about. Question for you, who created the angels? God, right? So they're called here the sons of God. Verse 2, the sons of God saw that the daughters of men were beautiful, and they took wives for themselves, whomever they chose. Then the Lord said, my spirit shall not strive with man forever, because he also is flesh. Nevertheless, his days shall be 120 years. So here we see the Lord saying, I'm not going to allow this to continue. Man's got 120 years. 120 years. As that would be the time that it would take for Noah, a preacher of righteousness, to complete the ark. Okay? And when that clock had run out, God was wiping the whole thing out with a worldwide flood. Verse 4, the Nephilim were on the earth in those days. And also afterward, when the sons of God came into the daughters of men, and they bore children to them. Those were the mighty men who were of old, men of renown. So not only was there just a general wickedness from among the human people, but also these fallen angels, these demons, were cohabitating with these women, and they bore children to them. Now, it's important to understand these were not normal human beings because they had gone after strange flesh. This is like Frankenstein stuff here. They produced this kind of demonic hybrid called the Nephilim, the Nephilim, which means giants or fallen ones. And the best we can tell from the text, and and believe me, this, this gets real weird, right? (laughs) But the best we can tell from the text, these were demon-possessed offsprings. These mighty men of old, men of renown. So you say, they attempted to create some kind of unredeemable race? Yep. Yep. That's the reason God had to drown the entire earth. So, What did Satan want to do? He wanted to corrupt the the human line. The line of the promised Messiah. The seed of Genesis 3. Okay? And if you can create a demon man, well, they become unredeemable. Christ as the God-man has come to redeem men, not demon men. And so God cast these angels, these demons into hell, committing them to chains and gloomy darkness to be kept for the judgment. Why? Because they attempted to destroy the capability of Christ to redeem the human race. In fact, you might recall from our study back in 1 Peter, we spent some time looking over this because there's some verse Peter likes talking about this stuff. This was real well known in the time of, of Peter and Jude. They write about it like we should all know about it. Most of us are going, what is this story about? They just put it here and go, yeah, you know what happened back in Genesis 6. It's kind of a big deal. We we got no idea. We go, what's what's this? But here in 1 Peter, when we looked at it, after Christ went to the cross and died for our sins as we just praised the Lord once for all, having been put to death in the flesh but made alive in the spirit, he then went somewhere, didn't he? He went, verse 19 says, and made proclamation to who? The spirits now in prison. Why? Verse 20, because they formerly did not obey when God's patient waited in the days of when? Noah. Noah. And I believe that's why Jesus showed up. For you see, when he died upon that cross, these demons believed we've won. 
We've killed the Messiah. Mission accomplished. We've killed the Christ. But Jesus, having been put to death in the flesh, but being made alive in the Spirit, he made sure to go pay these demons a little visit to let them know, <laughs> no, it is finished, you see. I have accomplished my redemption through death. The redemption which you tried to corrupt, but could not. But why does Peter mention these angels, these demons, in 2 Peter chapter 2? What's his point? Well, his point is this. For if God didn't spare angels when they tried perverting his truth, and when they attempted to spread their corruption, then what makes you think he will spare false teachers who are lesser beings, who lead people to believe lies about him and his word, and thus endeavor to destroy his redemptive purpose? And so that's the illustration number one, fallen angels. And if God judged them, he will certainly judge the false teachers. The second illustration, Peter moves now to example number two, which is also at the time of Noah in the ancient world. From the fallen angels to the ancient world. Notice verse five. And if God, and again I would prefer since, but if God did not spare the ancient world, but preserved Noah, a preacher of righteousness with seven others, when he brought a flood upon the world of the ungodly. And we'll just stop right there. This is now Peter's second witness. This is another conditional sentence. He's saying, if God condemned the whole world by drowning them all, except for Noah and seven others, then why would he spare the lesser number of false teachers? Millions of ungodly people that occupied the ancient world were caught in the devastating flood and were plunged into eternal judgment. This, by the way, follows what we just saw in Genesis 6 as God sees the wickedness on the earth and sends a great flood to wipe out all those fallen angels who had committed their great and heinous sin. But before we go there, let's look more closely at verse 5. It says, if God did not spare the ancient world. The world mentioned here is not just the world of people, but the world as a system. The world as cosmos, right? It means the entire unrighteous um, world system. The system of the world that had developed since the fall of Adam. Turn back now, back to Genesis chapter 6, verse 5. It's right where we left off. And we can pick right up on the story where we were a moment ago. Genesis chapter 6, starting in verse 5. It says, Then the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great on the earth, and that every intent, look at this, of the thoughts of his heart, was only evil continually. The Lord was sorry that he had made man on the earth, and he was grieved in his heart. The Lord said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land, from man to animals to creeping things, and to the birds of the sky, for I am sorry that I have made them. Wow. The Lord was sorry that he had made man, and it says he was grieved in his heart. He says, I'm going to destroy this whole thing. Verse 8, but Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. Middle of verse 9, Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his time. Noah walked with God. Verse 10, Noah became the father of three sons, Shem, Ham, Japheth, Verse 11, now the earth was corrupt in the sight of God, and the earth was filled with violence. God looked upon the earth, and behold, it was corrupt, for all flesh had corrupted their way upon the earth. Then God said to Noah, the end of all flesh has come before me, for the earth is filled with violence because of them, and behold, I am about to destroy them with the earth. Whew. Peter says, if God is so committed to the truth 
and so committed to righteousness that he will drown the entire world? Why should we believe that he would spare the lesser group, a smaller group of false teachers and false prophets who have lived in the same way, corrupting his truth and living in unrighteousness? I want you to turn to 2 Peter chapter 3 for a moment because there we see a future prophetic precedent announced. A prophetic precedent. It says, 2 Peter chapter 3 and verse 9. But the Lord is not slow about his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, in which the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the elements will be destroyed with the intense heat, and the earth and its works will be burned up. Look back at verse 7. But by his word, the present heavens and earth are being reserved for fire, kept for the day of judgment and destruction of ungodly men. God did it in the past. He destroyed the whole world. And God says he will do it again in the future. In the past, he did it by fire. In the future, he did it by water. In the future, he'll do it by fire. But God always gives fair warning. Look at uh, Jude 14. Jude 14. This is even to the days of Noah. It talks about Enoch. Verse 14 Enoch, who was in the seventh generation from Adam, who prophesied. Wow, what did Enoch say? What did, he, what did he warn the people about? He said, Behold, the Lord came with many thousands of his holy ones to execute judgment upon all and to convict all the ungodly of all their ungodly deeds, which they have done in an ungodly way, and of all the harsh things which ungodly sinners have spoken against him. Long before Noah, out of the proclamation mouth of Enoch, had come a warning of judgment against the ungodly. And then there was the preaching of Noah, who not only built the ark for 120 years, but we learn from scripture he was a preacher of righteousness for 120 years. For 120 years, Noah's Ark was an object lesson of the coming judgment. Imagine the size of that thing. And as he preached, that's behind him. It was uh, an object lesson for about a year, or it was a lesson for about a year, but it was an object lesson for 120. It was a boat. One year they floated for 120 years. It was just an object lesson behind them. So it says in verse 5 that God brought a flood upon the world of the ungodly. By the way, that word for flood is the word cataclysmos, where we get cataclysm, deluge. It was a worldwide flood of total destruction. The whole world was engulfed by water. If you look at Second Peter chapter 3 again, and we'll look at this more in the future when we get there, these false teachers were people who didn't think that God was going to return. Therefore, they didn't think that God was going to judge anybody. So live the way you want. Do whatever you want. But they had forgotten that he already has. Verse 5 says, that escapes their notice. That by the word of God, the heavens existed long ago, and the earth was formed out of water and by water, through which the world at that time was destroyed, being flooded with water. The Bible says that the whole world was destroyed with water. Couldn't be more clear than that. The flood covered the earth. Now as we return to verse 5, Peter writing about this, he imagines under the direction of the Holy Spirit that maybe some of the Christians might be getting a bit nervous, wondering if 
they're going to escape this future judgment. And so he adds a note to comfort and to encourage his flock. He says in verse 5 that God did not spare the ancient world. And then in the middle of the verse it says, but preserved Noah, a preacher of righteousness with seven others. And here's a principle to keep in mind. And we're going to see it again in a moment. That in the midst of this terrible flood, this holocaust of universal judgment, God preserved Noah, a preacher of righteousness, with seven others. We all know the story. I don't need to cover it all in, in detail, but, you know, God told him to go and build the ark. He told him to take his wife and his three sons and their three wives and to go in and to take two of each of the living things so that the world could be repopulated. And for 120 years, Noah was a faithful preacher of righteousness. He heralded the message to the ungodly to turn from their life of sin and to obey the Lord our God. Calvin writes of Noah that he tried to bring a degenerate world to a sound state of mind. And because he did so not only by teaching and exhortations to holiness, but by his constant and anxious toil for 120 years in building the ark, end quote. He had preached proclaiming God's truth with his lips, and he preached using his hands and his feet. Each day faithfully for 120 years, as Noah believed God and was obedient in what God had called them to do. And there's no doubt, while Noah's faithfully preached God's word, that there were many, many demon-inspired teachers who mocked Noah and lied about God's truth of a coming flood. They laughed at Noah building this huge ark for 120 years. What a waste of time that there's going to be a worldwide flood. And the world believed them and not Noah. And judgment came. But God knew who his own were. And it says he preserved Noah, a preacher of righteousness with seven others. That word preserved here means to be guarded in a safe place. It speaks of um, being protected. And of course, in their case, in the physical realm, it was speaking of the ark, but in reality, it was in Christ. It was in Christ. And when that ark finally settled on Mount Ararat and the water subsided, it was once again a new world, a world of righteous people. And so it will be again, beloved, after the great white throne judgment of God. Next, as Peter continues through the book of Genesis, the next precedent of God's judgment is the third one, Sodom and Gomorrah. We saw the fallen angels, the ancient world, and now Sodom and Gomorrah. Notice verse 6, as this is absolutely potent, powerfully illustrated of God's judgment on those who rebel against his truth. It says, And if God condemned the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah to destruction by reducing them to ashes, having made them an example to those who would live ungodly lives thereafter, and we'll stop right there. Peter names the two major cities of the plain, Sodom and Gomorrah, Genesis 13, 12 calls them the cities of the valley. These were major cities of the Jordan Plain near the southeast corner of the Dead Sea. And it says in verse 6, he condemned the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah to destruction by reducing them to ashes. The word condemned here has the idea of a sentence executed on the wicked. This judgment was like the flood. It was totally devastating in that it killed every single human being, not by water this time, but by divine fire. They were incinerated. And everything that was left was but ashes. What was once a lush and beautiful valley, and it really must have been beautiful, because you remember when Abraham and Lot were looking to decide who got what part of the land, and land chose this area because it was so lush. Well, it became a soot pile. The word for destruction, catastrophe, where we get our word, catastrophe, catastrophe. I'm not saying that right. 
a text. When I start looking at these Greek words, they start messing up my English words. It means an overthrowing. In fact, the devastation of Sodom and Gomorrah was so wholesale, they can't even find those cities today. No idea. No idea. They were utterly non-discernible. But why did God do it? Why did God do it? Why did he totally just obliterate and incinerate a whole civilization? Answer, they rejected his truth, they were steeped in sin, and they were listening to false teachers. And so verse 6 says, he made them an example to those who would live ungodly lives thereafter. He wanted to send an unmistakable message to all future generations that all false teachers and those who follow their lives will feel the fury of God's incinerating vengeance. You remember this account, don't you, back in Genesis 19? You remember what happened? Remember what happened at the end of Genesis 18? You can turn there for a moment. Genesis chapter 18, we'll look at this quickly. Abraham was so concerned about them, he prayed to God. He prayed that God would spare them. Remember what he said to God? He kept giving God numbers. In chapter 18, verse 24, he said, Lord, suppose there were 50 righteous within the city. Will you then sleep, sweep them away to the place and not spare it for the 50 righteous who are in it? And his number just kept dropping and dropping. Got to verse 32. And then he said, oh, let not the Lord be angry and I will speak again, but just as once. Suppose 10 are found there. Are there even 10? And the Lord answered, for the sake of 10, I will not destroy it. If there are 10 righteous there, I will not destroy it. Abraham had pleaded with God, there are just 10 righteous people that God would withhold his wrath and do you want to know something? There wasn't even 10. There wasn't 10 righteous people in this whole region. And do you know that this was about 450 years just after the flood? Like, they didn't learn? This whole culture is described in Genesis 13, 13 by these words. They were wicked exceedingly and sinners against the Lord. All the warnings, all the warnings and even the flood from which in some ways they were still recovering from. And yet God sees Sodom and Gomorrah and says, I'm going to make them an example by reducing them to ashes. Now what did they do to deserve this? Let's look at Genesis 19 and see what kind of life brought this on. Genesis 19, starting in verse 1. Now the two angels came to Sodom in the evening as Lot was sitting in the gate of Sodom. And when Lot saw them, he rose to meet them and bowed down with his face to the ground. And he said, Now behold, my lords, please turn aside into your servant's house and spend the night and wash your feet. Then you may rise early and go on your way. See, Lot recognized these were no normal men, that these were angels. But they always can take on physical form, these angels. And, and when they appear, they always appear in the form, as I mentioned, as men. So Lot recognizes this. He recognizes that they're angels, however. And he invites them to spend the night at his home. But in verse 2, they said, however, no. But we shall spend the night in the square. Yet Lot urged them strongly. So they turned aside to him and entered his house and he prepared a feast for them and baked unleavened bread and they ate. See, Lot knew that spending the night in the square was not a good idea. So scripture says he urged them strongly. He pleaded with them. Verse 4, the trouble really begins. Before the angels laid down, the men of the city the men of Sodom surrounded the house, both young and old, all the people from every quarter. Now, I don't know how many there were, but this is to give us the idea that there were a lot of men. It says from every quarter of the city, both young and old, the men came 
and surrounded the house. Verse 5, and they called to Lot and said to him, where are the men who come to you tonight? Bring them out to us that we may have relations with them. So now we know what Lot was concerned about. The city was filled with homosexuals. The whole city of men had come and they wanted to have homosexual relations with these magnificent angels, these creatures. Verse 6, but Lot went out to them at the doorway and shut the door behind them and said, please, my brothers, do not act wickedly. Now behold, this is very troubling, I have two daughters who have not had relations with man. Please let me bring them out to you and you can do whatever you like, only do nothing to these men. Now obviously this is a troubling passage. And I would remind you, Lot is the one who comes up with this ridiculous idea. <laughs> okay? Not God, not the angels, Lot. It's important to remember that. Sometimes people will read scripture and say, why did that happen? Did God do that? No, Lot did that. And as their father, he had a duty to protect his daughters from harm, did he not? So he failed his daughters there. Lot's a flawed man like us. Verse 9. But the men outside said, stand aside. So they weren't even interested in Lot's daughters. Furthermore, they said, this one, speaking of Lot, this one came in as an alien. And already he's acting like a judge. Now we will treat you worse than them. So they pressed hard against Lot and came near to try to break in the door. This is showing us the depraved, lustful passion of this homosexuality. It was so out of control. They are all piled up outside his door. They're trying to break in to get to these angels. And so they tried to crush Lot against the door to break the door down. Verse 10 says, but the men, the angels, reached out their hands and brought Lot into the house with them and shut the door. Then, watch this. They struck the men, the men who were outside, who were at the doorway of the house with blindness, both small and great, so that they were wearied, so that they wearied themselves trying to find the doorway. They were blind and they were still trying to break in. Did they repent? Did they turn away? No. They wearied themselves trying to find their doorway. You talk about perversion they've just gone blind and all that they can think about is getting at those angels that's the level of depravity we're talking about here verse 12 then the two men said to lot whom else have you here a son-in-law and your sons and your daughters and whomever you have in the city bring them out of the place for we are about to destroy this place because their outcry has become so great before the Lord that the Lord has sent us to destroy it. God had seen enough and he had decided I'm going to destroy the whole thing. These cities. Verse 15. When morning dawned, the angels urged Lot saying, get up, take your wife, your two daughters who are here, or you will be swept away in the punishment of the city. But he hesitated, verse 16. You know, I think this hesitation is rooted in, in the, the cares and the worries of the world, right? If the angel shows up at your house, he says, get up, destruction's coming, get out of here, pack up and go. Right now, you're going, yeah, but wait, what about, what? I, I gotta grab this, I gotta grab this, I gotta grab this. That's what Lot's doing. What do you mean? Go, I've got stuff here. My stuff. He hesitated. So guess what? The men, the angel, seized his hand and the hand of his wife and the hands of his two daughters for the compassion of the Lord was upon him. And they brought him out and put him outside the city. So there was Lot, there was his wife, and there were his two daughters there weren't even ten righteous out of both of those cities. Later we find out it wasn't even four as there was only three who would survive. 
For as we see in verse 26, Lot's wife turns back to look back during the judgment and she comes as a pillar of salt. Your heart should grieve over this fallenness. It's unthinkable what kind of lifestyle that these people were engaged in, ultimately leading to the cause of their own destruction. It says in Jude 7 about them that Sodom and Gomorrah and the cities around them, there were other cities, by the way. It sounds like there was a total of four. Sodom and Gomorrah were just the chief cities. And the cities around them, since they in the same way as these indulged in gross immorality and went after strange flesh and exhibited as an example in undergoing the punishment of eternal fire. And Sodom and Gomorrah, they went after strange flesh just as the fallen angels had gone after the strange flesh of, of the women in Genesis 6. And so God says, I'm going to destroy them. And he has sent fire that incinerated all of them and turned the whole place into an ash pile, a soot pile. And Sodom and Gomorrah became the prime example of the sin of man against the truth of God and then the consequences of that sin. And by the way, there are about 15 references in the Old Testament that make mention, make mention to the judgment of Sodom and Gomorrah as reminders, object lessons. And in the New Testament, repeatedly, we read examples. The Lord Jesus Christ referred to Sodom and Gomorrah multiple times as they use that as an illustration of what happens to people who fail to believe in the truth of God's word. So God judged that society. Now I want you to to notice now verses 7 and 8. I want you to see this because this is a very potent truth. Verse 7, And if he res rescued righteous Lot, oppressed by the sensual conduct of unprincipled men, for by what he saw and heard that righteous man while living among them felt his righteous soul tormented day after day by their lawless deeds. Again, Peter wanting to be sensitive to his really pastoral duties speaks a word of comfort to all who would read this. In both of the illustrations where God does a wholesale devastation of all the living people, in both the flood and Sodom and Gomorrah, once over the whole face of the earth, that was the flood in the region of the plain of Sodom and Gomorrah, in each case, because the devastation is so wholesale, he stops here to say there were some who were rescued. It was Noah and seven others in verse 5. Here, it's righteous Lot. It doesn't say anything about his daughters being righteous, which if you read the narrative story, you might understand why. But it does say Lot was righteous. And, you know, for some people, that seems to be a problem. In fact, would you please notice that in verses 7 and 8, Lot is called righteous three times? Verse 7, he rescued righteous Lot. Verse 8, that righteous man. Verse 8, his righteous soul tormented. Now, if God says someone is righteous once, he's righteous. Okay? If he says it three times, he's trying to make a point. Because if he had said it once, we might question whether or not it was really what God had really said. So he says it three times just to make sure we're clear. Now, it does need some explaining. You start out in Genesis 13, you meet Lot, and he comes across as being worldly, I'd say. He's uh, selfish, he appears to lack any kind of godly discernment, and by the time you come to chapter 19, as we just read, he offers up his own daughters to calm down the lust of these perverts. And so he was weak as a father in his duty to protect his daughters. And then when the angel said to get out, he dilly-dallied around and hesitated. And so the angels needed to grab his hands in order to drag him out in time. And then by the time you hit verse 30 of chapter 19, he's tucked away in a safe place in the mountains and doesn't have the self-control not to drink too much wine. He becomes drunk, and he is sexually taken advantage of by his own daughters. So you might be thinking, this is a righteous man with a righteous soul? 
How could Peter say that? Let me tell you how. Number one, when you read about Abraham when he prayed for the 50, 40, the 30, if there's even 10, he must have included a lot in his prayer. The group of the righteous men that he wanted to identify when he said, God, if there are only 10 who are righteous, it appears as though Abraham believed that Lot was righteous. And it looks as though God interceded on, on behalf of Abraham's prayer. Read Genesis 19.29. See what you think on that. More importantly than that, Lot believed in God. Lot believed in God, and his faith was counted to him as righteousness. Lot also sought to obey God. We see Lot wanting to leave. He's just kind of hung up on everything happening so quickly. And when he did leave, Lot never looked back. We also see Lot as reverent as he bowed before the holy angels of God. He was hospital to them. And all those things are true, but I think here Peter marks his righteousness additionally in another way. Which really gets at the heart of it, I believe. Notice once again what Peter says in verses 7 and 8. And if he rescued righteous Lot, oppressed by the sensual conduct of unprincipled men, for by what he saw and heard that righteous man, while living among them, felt his righteous soul tormented day after day by their lawless deeds. You know how we know that he was righteous? Because he hated what? He hated sin. He hated sin. Sure, he might have been a weak father. And yes, he may have had some weaknesses from worldly possessions. And yes, he appeared at times as being selfish. And yes, he, he had a little bit of hesitance in moving out. And yeah, he's responsible for all the action that happened, even when he drank too much, while he was mourning the loss of his wife. But you know what? Lot would have zero part of the filth of the culture that he lived in. In fact, he was oppressed by the sensual conduct of unprincipled men. And I'll tell you something, the more I chewed on this verse, the louder those words pierced my ears. That should be able to be said of every Christian. He was oppressed by the sin that he saw in the world. In his heart, he loved the righteousness of God, and in his heart, he hated sin. He rejected the sins of his culture. Literally, the Greek translation for the word oppressed says, they wore down his soul. It means to wear out someone, to exhaust them through suffering. He was worn out with them. He was literally troubled so deeply and exhausted with what he had to endure in the culture around him. So here was a man who was worn out, exhausted by the unprincipled immorality, sinful behavior of men who hated God. Verse 8 makes the point even stronger that he had a righteous heart for by what he saw and heard all that was going on in his own culture, that righteous man while living among them felt his righteous soul tormented day after day with their lawless deeds. Like Noah and his family, Lot also stood against sin in his day. He wasn't swallowed up in the sewer of immorality and lawless deeds. The whole society had followed the sway of the evil one. There was nothing but lies. They rejected God's truth and followed the false teachers of Satan, but not Lot. And God was gracious to him. God was gracious to him. And beloved, this must be the attitude of the church. We are to hate sin and to love the perfect law of God's righteousness. Too many times the church sits lukewarm or neutral on the things that society has deemed to be okay because they say it's okay. It's a lie from the devil, and the more you just go along with the lie against the truth of God, it should burn your heart, not for hatred towards the person committing the sin, but for the sin and the false lies that the devil has portrayed amongst the people. That leads us to our final point, 
the pattern of their judgment. We saw the precedent for judgment, and finally, the pattern. And it comes to us in verses 9 and 10a, and we're going to conclude with this. Verse 9, the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from temptation and to keep the unrighteous under punishment for the day of judgment, and especially those who indulge the flesh and its corrupt desires and despise authority. Listen, the Lord knows how to judge the wicked, and he also knows how to deliver the righteous. Paul, writing to the Thessalonian church concerning the day of the Lord, says, For you yourselves know full well that the day of the Lord will come, just like a thief in the night. While they are saying peace and safety, then destruction will come upon them suddenly. Like labor pains upon a woman with child, Paul says, and they will not escape. But you, brethren, are not in darkness that the day would overtake you. You're not going to experience this. We see the rapture in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 13, followed by the day of the Lord in 1 Thessalonians 5, 1 through 3. Rapture first, day of the Lord second. The Lord is going to deliver us, even as he did Noah and his family, even as he did Lot. If you want to turn quickly to Luke 17, verse 26, I want to remind you of the words of our Lord. The Lord says in 17, Luke 17, 26, and just as it happened in the days of Noah, so it will be also in the days of the Son of Man. They were eating and they were drinking. Oh, they were marrying and they were being given in marriage until the day that Noah entered the ark and the flood came and destroyed them all. And it was the same that happened in the days of Lot. Oh, they were eating, they were drinking, they were buying and they were selling. They were planting and they were building. But on the day that Lot went out from Sodom, it rained fire and brimstone from heaven and destroyed them all. Verse 30, it will be just the same on the day that the Son of Man is revealed, Jesus says. On that day, the one who is on the housetop and whose goods are in the house must not go down and take them out. And likewise, the one who is in the field must not turn back. Remember Lot's wife. Don't turn back. Don't turn back. God will rescue his own and judgment will come. That's the pattern of judgment. And we see it rehearsed in verse 9 and in the first part of verse 10. Let's look at these quickly as we close. Verse 9, notice how it begins. It says, Peter says, the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from temptation. And I love that phrase, the Lord knows how. The Lord knows how. Okay? Yeah, but I don't know. The Lord knows how. It might be difficult for you to understand how this whole thing is going to work out, but the Lord knows how to rescue the godly. Okay? Now, what's he mean there to rescue the godly from temptation? Well, in the context of the word um, temptation here, it's from the parosmos, and it means a testing or trial. A great example of this word being used is found in Revelation chapter 3, verse 10, and the letter to the church in Philadelphia. Notice what the Lord says. Because you have kept the word of my perseverance, I also will keep you from the hour of testing, parasmas. The Lord is promising to keep his church from the upcoming destruction. He says, I will keep you from the hour of testing, the hour which is about to come upon the whole world. And that's what Peter is saying right there in our verse. The Lord knows how to rescue the godly from the temptation, the, the judgment to come. But not only that, he also knows how to keep the unrighteous under punishment for the day of judgment. In other words, he knows how to guard them and to hold them for the day of judgment. Like a prisoner's in a prison simply waiting for the death sentence. And that refers, of course, to the great white throne judgment of Revelation chapter 20, verse 11. When all the ungodly of all the ages will all finally be judged and will be cast into the lake of fire. We close with verse 10 as Peter says, and especially. And here he's going all the way back to the main idea. 
especially takes us all the way back to the false teachers in verses 1 and 3, and especially those who indulge the flesh in its corrupt desires and despise authority. What characteristics did we see last week from these false teachers? They were characterized by two things. Verse 2 said, many will follow their sensuality. They were lustful, carnal. We see in verse 4 of chapter 2, they have eyes full of adultery. They had no problem committing the sin in play daytime. And in verse 10, he makes the connection by saying they indulge the flesh in its corrupt desires. They want defilement like the homosexuals in Sodom. So that was the first characteristic that we saw. The second one we saw is in the middle of verse 10. They despise authority. Remember this? What authority was it that they despised? End of verse 1. They denied the master who bought them. They despise his lordship. They want Christ as a savior, but they want nothing to do with him as their lord or master. They want to name the name of Christ, but do not want to live under his authority. They reject the sovereign lordship of Christ. They name his name, but they don't want to live by his commands. So all who teach lies about him and all who live unrighteously, who deny his lordship, Beloved, they will be judged. They will be judged, especially those false teachers who come in his name and live sensual lives of disobedience. And yet, the Lord, the Lord is faithful, beloved. And he knows how to rescue the godly from the time of judgment that will come. He rescued Noah and his family. He rescued Lot. And if your trust is in Christ, he has rescued you. If you're in need of prayers this morning, I want to invite you to come forward today. We'd be happy to pray with you. This time I want to invite you to please stand as we praise our God, our living hope. Lord bless you.